You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel, streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app. Welcome in to the Otzen Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel on the show. As always, it's hump day. It's Wednesday. That means it's mailbag day. We're going to dive into this mailbag and give you a ton of discussion on Football, football recruiting, basketball, basketball recruiting. We've got it all covered in this mailbag. There's going to be a ton to talk to, uh, talk about uh, me and Eric here on, on the show. And first we do that, I want to remind you guys, hey, go give us a review on Google Podcast or iTunes or Spotify, whatever you, platform you use to listen to the show. Uh, please give us a review. That's always helpful. Uh, it, it helps us, believe it or not. It seems like a simple thing, but it does. Uh, and also make sure to follow and subscribe uh, our, to our podcast channel. It's free and you get notified every single time that we upload a podcast directly to your device uh, or tablet or computer, whatever platform or device you use to listen to the show. You get notified instantly when we upload new podcasts. All right, Eric, uh, let's I think football first, basketball second. That'll be the way this show goes. And I think in general, probably going to be the format and as long as spring football is going and probably into the off season and through football season, we'll just kind of lead the show with football related questions and then bounce into some basketball ones. We got a, a good variety today and we should note there was a question that was extremely, uh, well, basically they asked us to do a fantasy football draft for every former Oregon player. And that's a really fun idea. And so uh, you know, the, the poster probably listened to this. We, we are interested in the concept, but for time's sake and to get to some other questions, we're maybe going to devote like an entire podcast during the summer to sure. something like that, maybe after the draft. But uh, that will not be part of this question. We saw the question. We liked the question, um, but just felt like, man, we probably don't want this to be an hour and 45 minute podcast. We've been going about an hour as it is recently, so didn't want to expand it too much with, with that question. So, But keep an eye out probably sometime, um, I don't know, in the next couple of months, we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that sort of thing. But first question from... Waddle to waddle. Do you think recruiting is more about finding the best players available or is it sometimes creating pipelines like Mario Cristobal is doing right now in Texas? Is it a little bit of both or is it always to get the best player available? Um, Well, all right. Like I think for starters, you don't just take a player from a state that can't play at your level. So like, I mean, there has to be some level of, of competency, some sort right. of line in the sand of like, okay, this guy can play for us. I mean, that has to be a part of it. They're not just going to give any Joe Blow uh, one of 85 scholarships just to hope that five years down the road they can get a bunch of guys from that same high school and that original guy can't help them at all. They're not going to do that. And I would actually, and like, I think a thing I would say is like, you probably are more inclined to see, like, I think back to how Mario Cristobal and Willie Taggart both started in Eugene where they, they took some flyers on some guys from from parts of the country or from high schools. Like I think of Willie Taggart, a lot of kids from Florida. He had connections there. I'm sure he was thinking, and, and, and we started to see that pay dividends the next class before it all split up where you got a couple of younger teammates of these elite recruits. And in 20, I believe that was the 2017 class, um, you know, Oregon goes out and lands a bunch of kids from Florida. None of them are like super highly rated, mostly like mid to three, low three stars. 2018, you go ahead and you see, wow, 
they're going to get Warren Thompson and uh, I'm blanking on some of these other names, but there was, there was like four or five kids that they had committed to before Willie Taggart or that committed to them before Willie Taggart bounced. Um, I think Isaiah Bolden might've been one of them, but like, but just they, 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 it seemed like that kind of took place. I think when you're in the early parts of a program, that makes sense. I think even Mario Cristobal, you saw with taking a player like Austin Fallu, um, a, a, you know, a, a guy like that, you take that player, he goes to Matter Day, that sets you up, and suddenly Oregon has a bunch of players from that school, and it's you know, in, you know, in its program. And obviously, a player like Austin Fallu ended up being a real beneficial addition, long term. Um, but like I, I can so I can see that in theory of like yeah, maybe you take a guy when you're kind of at the out you know on the onset of building a program of hey maybe he's even or slightly below prospect X but we're gonna maybe take a shot here because we think he's got a younger brother who's really good or he's got friends who are really good like maybe you do that but I, what I don't think you do um, and, and and I think honestly I should say like I think things have changed now where I don't think Oregon needs to do that I think Oregon yeah. can without quote unquote building a pipeline to an area can, can basically just go grab guys they like. Um, and you've seen now the last couple of cycles, like you talk about building a pipeline to, you know, Maryland and you know, the DMV and that whole part of the country, well, Oregon didn't need to go out and sign lesser caliber guys. They went out and got Dante Thornton and Damon David and everything we've heard is those two guys, you know, both, you know, big time prospects, four-star recruits, uh, Dante Thornton, one of the best receivers Oregon's ever signed and, and, Damon David, who his nickname is Scoop, those are two guys who might play quite a bit this year. Yep. Um, and so those are guys from the state of Maryland where they didn't have to. You go look at the history; they're like I think aside from maybe Keith Sims, who was a linebacker recruit who didn't pan, pan out maybe half a decade ago. Like Oregon didn't recruit that area, so like I, I don't think you have to take a quote unquote lesser recruit from an area just to take that recruit. Um, what's going on in Texas right now? Who's to say that those are players that are quote unquote? not the best players available. I, I don't think that's necessarily fair. Like, are we, I mean, I know based on recruiting rankings, maybe there are guys who are slightly highly, more highly regarded, but I, I also think it's very plausible that, you know, the way that Oregon constructs its big board and the way it kind of sets up who it, who it really wants to take, that they saw those guys and thought those guys were takes regardless of where they were from. So like, I think a lot goes into this. Um, and, and I guess my, just my, my general thought is like right now where Oregon is at, I don't think you, I don't look at the way they're recruiting and think, Oh, they're only taking that player to set up some sort of continued success at that high school or in that region of the country. Um, and I think you look at the, the recruits in both 2019, 2020, and 21, and I think it's really hard to find a single guy where you go like, oh, that was a reach, but they're going to get some dividend paid down the line. I think you took all those guys because you think they could help the team. And frankly, you look at the, the, the you know, kind of the return on basically everyone in these last couple of classes it's really hard to point out a guy who's like, oh, that was just a, that was a reach that didn't work out. I don't think Oregon is currently in a situation where they're having to take like a flyer or find a diamond in the rough. They're able to go out and get the top guys. And, and so I, I think it's best case available for sure. Um, and, and maybe there is a situation where they do think of, you know, maybe there is a situation where the, there's kind of a little bit of push and a pull, a little bit of both, but I, I don't think they're, they're picking a kid because of geography. I think they're picking him because I think he's a great fit for the program. You nailed it saying that this program doesn't need to do that anymore. I'm like going in and getting a two-star guy in hopes that in two years that guy has a good experience and he can go out and get, you know, his four-star teammate who can come to Oregon. Now, don't get me wrong. This program is strategically going into high schools and saying like, hey, we really like this player. He is good enough for a committable offer. 
we, we will take him. We also like this guy that's also in Texas, and he's kind of around the same ranking uh, and committable offer. We might take the guy in Texas over the guy in California because we know that he's really close with yeah. player B and player C who are in the, the – one's a junior, one's a senior, and both those – guys are also very high on Oregon. And we think if we get player a and we continue to push for player B and C, we could get all three. Like that does happen. You know, they're, they're going out and finding guys that are good enough for Oregon that are in schools like Texas or in regions that have other guys that are higher ranked that have strong interest in Oregon as well. Sure. Yeah. But I, I mean, I, but I even think like in this year's class and he was talking about Texas I don't look at Landon Hullaby and, and Stephon Johnson and go like, those are guys they reached on. Right. Like no, I think they're, I the, ta- the talent on both those guys is pretty evident. And I look at both those guys and think those were takes regardless. I mean, these are four-star recruits, you know, Johnson's a, a borderline four-star three-star. You go watch the tape, which I have. And, and I suggest those listening do as well. Like this guy can play. And like, you know, is he the same profile as the receiver recruits Oregon took last year? Not right now, he's not. But I think if you go back and look at recruiting rankings, they vary a lot, and there and there's no reason to suggest that someone who's a high-end three-star recruit right now can't be a, you know, top 150, top 200, four-star recruit by the time this whole thing ends. So I think be careful in terms of just like assessing based on recruiting rankings what the hierarchy might be. And I think Matt's right, like in terms of like, yeah, sure, there 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 is. You know, sometimes there's quote unquote the package deal in recruiting, or there are players that are connected to each other and know each other. Um, but like, I'll, like here, here's an example of like quote unquote a pipeline. Was it a pipeline to take Penne Sewell a couple of years ago, knowing you get Noah Sewell and <laughs> Kingsley Sumatia or Sumataya? Like maybe it quote unquote was a pipeline to get the first one, but you sure as hell were going to take Penne Sewell because he's one of the best, if not the best, offensive line prospects to come out of that the state and maybe the West Coast in like a decade. So, like, yeah, sure, you can say that that was a pipeline recruit because he was kind of the, the first big kid from Utah, Oregon lands, and it sets you up with his younger brother and then his, you know, really close family friend who are also, like, four or five-star recruits. But that's not a guy you bring in just because of the other guys. You take him independently, and, I, and I, that has to be the push-pull. And, again, I'm not saying that Oregon wouldn't bring in uh, a recruit who's maybe not quite as high a caliber in terms of the recruiting rankings of somebody else. But I also just think you have to kind of parse through that and, and, and suggest that Oregon does its own scouting and, and knows kind of what its priorities are each class and, and finds guys they like. And just because the recruiting rankings reflect that he's quote unquote lesser rated or, or lower, lower quality player than somebody else doesn't mean that's the case in their minds too. All right. Next one from at Tosh Myers with Tim Druder's defense, a base 3-4, there will be three defensive linemen consistently starting and 6-7 to seven in the rotation. With KT and Funat outside linebacker, that leaves four guys who played last year vying for spots. Popo, Williams, Dorless, and Ware Hudson. Who else do you see filling into the rotation? Um, I thought this was a good question because we were just – I can't remember when it was, but we were just talking about this. Oh, it was on Monday's show, wasn't it, when we were yeah. talking about KT moving to outside linebacker. Um, we think the D line might be the deepest. It's the deepest. Yeah. Position. So like the fallout there is, 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 is possibly you rely more on these guys. So those four, well, you mentioned those four, but you left out a fifth guy who played every game last year, who probably played maybe not as many snaps, but a decent percentage of snaps compared to these guys. And that's Braden Swinson. Yep. Um, and I think for sure with KT, 
it he sounds starts almost right. Like yeah, like he's gonna maybe he just fills in on those pass rushing downs. You know, maybe you go a little bigger. I mean, the other four guys we mentioned a second ago: Popo, Christian Williams, Brandon Dorless, Keanu Hudson. They're all 290, 300 pound body types. Swinson's two fifty, two sixty five, two seventy kind of guy. Um, maybe maybe the natural fit there is is that that's a you know situational personnel perspective. He comes in on pass rushing downs, clear pass rushing downs. And he fills it in a spot where KT is now allowed to stand and come off the edge. And I also think it's worth noting, like with KT's position change and even some of Mario's comments, like I'm not going to be surprised to see him with his hand down on certain downs too. Um, And, and, you know, I think you're just going to see him move around a little bit more. Um, It'll be interesting to see. And this will probably be something we do during the fall is just to track snaps of of where he plays to go back and watch the game. Okay. Well, he played 68% of snaps with, you know, standing and only, 32% 32% of snaps with his hand down, whatever the, the number is. But like, so that plays into it. But like, okay, so like from a depth perspective, I think there's actually five guys that I feel pretty good about, you know, throwing Swinson with those four. I do, I don't know if I know for sure who guys six and seven are. Um, I, I think Suave Poti, we should note, has, I think, received, you know, and, and I don't know, I don't know how much you want to take away from these, but each, after each practice, they pick a offensive, defensive, and special teams player of the practice. I thought it was kind of notable that Soavi Pote, who's been pretty quiet since enrolling a St. John's Bosco recruit, had some injuries to deal with when he came in. He was, he, he earned recognition for one of those days. And that was a guy who I remember last fall, Joe Salavea said he and uh, Mikhail Afisi, um, another Polynesian defensive lineman from Hawaii, that those two guys were players that were, you know, kind of had a lot to prove and, and weren't quite clear where they fit into things and that they just kind of had to work on their game. And I kind of took that as, you know, Big Joe kind of trying to motivate those two guys, seeing the potential in those two guys, trying to get the most out of them, saying, hey, yeah, they might be high upside guys, but right now they're not ready. And so part of me thinks those are two names to watch just because um, Joe highlighted them. And I think the, 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 the other one that everyone gets excited about, but we just, I don't know, like it's kind of hard to know exactly what his availability or just because of injury of, of what it's going to be is Jason Jones. Um I, I think we're all really excited based on the body type. Like this is as close as Oregon's had probably in half a decade to that DeForest Buckner, Eric Armstead, six, seven, six, eight, you know, I know he's listed six, six, but like that kind of body, that long rangy thick filled out frame. Like, I think that's a fit eventually, but is that right now? I don't know. Um, and I think, I don't know. Like, I think those are the, I guess those would be the three names I would point to off the top of my head. And maybe you throw in Keanu Williams cause he's a four star and he's a recent enrollee. But like I look at the five I said, and then I go Suave Poti, Makiel Afisi, and Jason Jones are the three that I would look at and say they kind of fit the body type and the composition of what I would expect to be players to to contribute right, right away. And another one, I guess, and I guess now I'm just naming every scholarship defensive lineman, which is <laughs> which is basically cheating. But like I, I also know like I just don't have any idea what to make from Jalen Smith because he was playing offensive line yeah. last year, and I know they're high on him, and physically he's a freak. Well, but like they don't like, move, what do you want to do with them? <laughs> they don't move him to offense last year. If they didn't think he was more than a year or two away from helping, like agreed, he could, That's be, what I think. He could be a good player and he probably will develop into one, but they don't make that move along the offensive line unless he's that good of an offensive line prospect where he doesn't move back, which he has. Right. Or they don't, they don't think he's going to help in a year or two because if he if he was a guy that was going to play a ton of snaps as a freshman in 2020 or even this year 
They Agreed. wouldn't have made that move. They would have picked somebody else. Uh, yeah, it has to be that. And we should note one other piece here. Um, when Kayvon was running through players who were playing a kind of a standing outside linebacker position, he included Jake Shipley, which I was surprised by. I mean, Shipley's body type, he's like 6'4", 280. Um, I would have thought he was going to kind of pack on some weight, but it sounds like he might be more of a the hybrid, I think it's called the star position, than he is a defensive lineman at this point. So, um, you know, the numbers, I think the thing with defensive line is they don't have a ton of bodies in this group. Like it's not, I mean, you look the at the guys that they have are really good. Yeah, exactly. And so like, I, I, I do still think, I feel pretty good about saying that there's five I, I'm confident in. I think part of spring and the off season and fall is trying to get to, to that six and seven number, which you do need to hit, especially if we think Kayvon is, is playing more of an outside linebacker role than a, than a defensive role, just a defensive line role. Cause that does cut some of your, your numbers down. Um, I don't know, Matt, like, do you have, I mean, I, I guess here's the question. If we, if you, I mean, first off, do you agree that like the five I, I listed are probably the five you feel best on? And yes, do, do, who, who is your like next one or two that you feel better about? Um, I, I feel very good about Brandon Dorless and then Christian Williams and then Braden Swinson and then Keanware Hudson. Uh, Popo Amave is the wild card. Like he's played in 25 games for Oregon, but he hasn't started a single game. Yeah, um, that's, that's and, wild. Yeah. Like Christian Williams played in three as a true freshman, redshirted as a redshirt freshman in 2020. He played in all seven, got two starts ahead of Popo at the nose tackle position um, towards the end of the year. Uh, Brandon Dorless also got a start for, for Oregon last season as a sophomore ahead of Popo. So that's a little bit of a pause for me. Like Popo is going to be either like a bonafide star at nose tackle, or he's going to be a really good you know backup player for two more years for Oregon. And that's why a couple of weeks ago, I included him as like guys with most to gain in spring ball because he, there's so many younger guys that are coming up that if he doesn't win the job now, probably won't ever happen for him. Um, behind that group, as crazy as it sounds, like I think, I think I would put Jason Jones being what the fifth guy, Suave Poti being the sixth, and Keanu Williams being the seventh. I just, I, I'm high on Jalen Smith, but again, like I said, you don't move him positions and have that kind of you know uncertainty unless you think he's a couple years away yeah and, and we should we should also know matt that we're, we're we'll talk to joe salive at some point this spring i don't know we don't have a date on that um typically they've done assistant coaches i think on thursdays and saturdays so probably later this week you'll see an update um from salive and and i'm hopeful and in the past he's been pretty forthcoming like i said um, but just kind of what he's seeing, you know, with this group and, and are we correct in throwing Swinson with that top four or is he a little bit further back and, you know, who, how much have a couple guys here who we literally haven't seen. We haven't seen Suave Pote play. We haven't seen um, Michaela Fisi or Jason Jones or Jalen Smith play. So like how far are those guys along? What's the progress been there? It's kind of hard to know because we don't get to watch practice um, to really get a feel on the hierarchy of like who's running with the twos or the threes and whatnot. But, um, speaking with, with coach Joe and, uh, and, you know, later this week or, or the next couple of weeks, we'll, we'll probably provide us some clarity on that. All right. Last football one, before we move on to some hoop talk on the back end here, uh, this is a little more of a logistics question, but I did think it was notable. And I, I thought we could maybe kind of bring the conversation, um, a little bit fuller circle here, but from Todd duck, I've seen a lot of discussion on fans or no fans at Austin for the spring game. 
but what about the logistics with the vaccine vaccination clinic set up in the parking lot? I cannot imagine they would break down all the tents, traffic gates, heaters, et cetera. Um, I wanted to include this just because I thought we should maybe touch base again on our expectation and see if we've, if they've changed for the concept of fans at the spring game. But first, real um, quick, if you're expecting 20,000 fans at Austin, you're crazy. Right. And I think that's the part of, look, they may not have enough fan. I mean, like first they they might not have fans at all. Like, I think that's totally plausible. I mean, I would probably expect because of what we're seeing with softball and baseball, having limited numbers in their, in their, you know, in their stands for games that you would want to get at least, some fans at the at Otson and, and I'm sure you could find a number that would be safe. I don't know what that number is off the top of my head. I'm, I'm not even going to throw one out there, um, but it certainly wouldn't be like a quarter capacity or something like that. It might not even be 10% of capacity that you're comfortable with. Um, so like from a parking perspective, I don't know if that's as big of a logistical concern as you would think, just because if you only have, you know, whatever the number is, you can probably, you know, figure out some finite parking space out there. Or, or set up a parking spot and, and do what a lot of people do anyway to games, which is you park at like Valley River or South Eugene High School or Sheldon High School or whatever. And then you, you know, I don't, I don't actually know how many people want to bus transport over. Maybe that's the worst idea in a pandemic, actually, now that I think about it. That might not be the play. But like, you, I, I would imagine there would be um, some creative ways to do this. But I, mean, I also think like the fact, it's kind of notable that we're recording this on the 13th of April and you're listening to this probably on the 14th. And, um, there has been no announcement for a spring game that's, you know, just over a couple of weeks away. Um, like, I don't know, Matt, where's your call? And like, is that, is that alarming to you that we haven't got any kind of clarity one way or the other on a spring game? Or is that kind of what you expect given kind of the circumstances? Um, both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not, to, not to talk out of both sides of my mouth, but I, I, I'm not surprised that Oregon hasn't made an announcement, you know, considering, you know, and look, they're some of it, some of their decisions aren't in their hands. They have to wait until, you know, Lane County health and Oregon health authority, you know, tell them what they can or cannot do. But I also think, you know, like if there's uncertainty, why make a decision now until you know for, for sure what you can or cannot do. You know, I, I think the worst one of the best things that the conference and Oregon um, and everybody in out West did was, Hey, uh, when this first happened, Hey, we're, we're not allowing fans, you know, and, and telling you all the way in November or excuse me, all the way in, in March or, or April or May, whenever June, whenever it happened and not string along fan bases, kind of what we're seeing right now of, can we come or can we not come? And then at the very last minute, all of a sudden have to maybe give out bad news. Hey, we can't have you here. And now all of a sudden you've got a bunch of people who've made plans and they have to cancel. Like, I I think that was really a a big step in a positive direction for the conference and for Oregon last year um, around this time when they just shut everything down. Like we're not, we're not having, fans in the stadium and, and everyone overreacted and was like, why can you make that decision now? Like wait until numbers get better. Da, 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 da. Wait, and wait until it gets closer. And it's like, well, people have to make plans. And, and so I, I think I expect there to be fans, but I think the general public, you're probably not going to get access to those tickets. The only way you, you can. And, and quite honestly, I bet Oregon says, you know, if you're getting, if you're being awarded a ticket, you can't exchange it 
to somebody else. Like only you can come uh, or, you know, the person you've tabbed for this ticket can come and, and there are no other trades. There are no other, you know, transfers, what have you. Um, but I, I think they'll probably allow fans. Uh, they'll it'll probably be a very, very small amount. Um, more often than not, uh, people that will be in the stadium will probably be people who are associated in some capacity with the people that are playing in the game. Like, I think that's probably the most likely scenario. And if they go beyond that, it'll probably be, you know, you have to be a season ticket holder to get tickets. And it'll probably be, you know, dependent upon where you stand and, and, and that, you know, hierarchy of season ticket holders, you know, within the Oregon fan base. But that's just me speculating. I'm not hearing anything of that nature. Um, but if you're expecting 10,000 Duck fans or 15,000 Duck fans, like, I don't expect it. it. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I think you have to pump the brakes here. And as, as exciting and, and cool as it is to, to think about Autzen Stadium with, with people in it for games, which, gosh, we've, we've talked on the podcast before, so I won't belabor it. We were at Autzen Stadium for every home game this last year, and it was really, really weird, really, really weird having no fans and being able to hear the players scream on the field and, you know, from that far. I, it just it was very strange. I'm ecstatic for the concept of being up in the press box and you have an actual atmosphere just because was, there wasn't one for, you know, whether it be football, basketball or, or whatever sport, um, you know, for games we attended. But I also think, like, while I do think they'll accommodate some, am I expecting it to feel like a spring game in, in, in a normal year? Absolutely not. And I think that's an unrealistic expectation. And, and hopefully, hopefully maybe by 2022 next year, you're able to have full capacity for a spring game and maybe they'll break the spring game attendance record and have it be literally like, I mean, cause I don't know what the number is like what the Matt, you know, off the top of your head, the most fans they've had at a spring game before, like maybe 50, I think it's 40. I was going to say, was it like 30 to 40,000? So like maybe you'll have a game in, in 2021 for the spring game and some of it will depend on how they play this fall, but like, where there are, you know, 55,000 fans there next year because it becomes more doable. I don't know, but I, I do think you can't really expect, I know we're kind of going off of the original question, but so I did. real quick and a hmm. quick Google search. I mean, 2011, they had 43,468, which time was a pack 10 record. Yeah. Um, don't know beyond that. I mean, in 2019, that spring game, um, that's one where Oregon had a Herbert coming back. They had 35,000. The next yeah. closest was Colorado with 7,550. Yeah. So I think you're not going to see that number, but maybe, maybe, maybe the. Excuse me. What a lot of the other conferences, uh, a lot of the other teams in the conference, their spring games are like. Like in 2019, which is the last time spring football has happened, UCLA and Washington didn't even report attendance. Colorado was second with 7,500. Uh, Oregon State had 2,500. Utah had 6,300. You know, it's it's all in that area, like anywhere from 15 to, to 7,500, 1,500 to 7,500. Yeah, and I guess that's the silver lining here. Maybe is is 2022. Not that there really is a silver lining to this whole thing, but maybe 2022 we see just a jam packed spring game, and it's going to be really really fun. I think we're sadly still like it feels like we're on the road to recovery, but we're sadly still just pretty far off like normalcy returning to the full extent that it had in the past where you could go to a football game full capacity. I just don't think we're there yet. And who knows what'll be the case this fall. I don't know if we have any clarity there either. All right. Back end of the show. Talking hoops. First question at John V Adams. I never understood why everyone seemed 
like it was a foregone conclusion that LJ Figueroa moves on. Seems like he has a great opportunity in front of him if he stays. What are the arguments for and against LJ Figueroa moving on? I'm hoping he stays. Um, I do think it's notable, Matt, that we're recording this now on the 13th of April. Oregon hasn't played in a game in about two weeks now, and we haven't heard anything from LJ in terms of if he's staying, if he's going. Um, and I, I, you know, and I, I know everyone's process is different, but a lot of people have already made some determination, whether that's the transfer to go pro, um, announcing that they are coming back. Um, what are you hearing with LJ? And, um, and then I guess we can talk about some of the reasons why or why not he, he should come back. So LJ Figueroa is still enrolled into school. And Dana Altman said that he's really proud of him because he's trying to finish out his college degree. Uh, he is in, I believe, in town too. Um, which is a real positive thing uh, for, for the Ducks. Now, Oregon's in a spring quarter system right now. We'll see what happens with LJ Figueroa in you know a couple of months when it's middle of June. Is he still in Eugene? Uh, and as you know, how, much, how many courses does he need left too, um, to to graduate? Now, why? A decision also hasn't been made one way or the other. Altman said he'll have all the time in the world that he needs. And, I mean, honestly, like, if you're Oregon, you're not going to come forward and be like, hey, we need to know by now if you're going to come because this is a guy that, that could be, like, a dark horse Pac-12 player of the year candidate for for Oregon if he comes back. Um, we'll see if that actually happens. But he's got all the time in the world to make his decision. There's no rush from Oregon. Um, I, I think the issue for him of maybe why he wouldn't come back is he will be 24 years old when the NBA draft happens next year. So if he were to come back to school and actually he'd be 25 because he's, he's 23 right now. He's born March 28, 1998. Uh, no, excuse me, 24. He'll be 24. I got my, got my math wrong. But he'll be 24 years old if he comes back by the time the NBA draft rolls around. And that's going to scare some teams away from wanting to draft him very high uh, in the draft because teams are going to look at him and say, well, he maybe just lost five or six years of, you know, his best, you know, some of his basketball timeline. And how much are we going to get out of him? The counterpoint to that is Chris Duarte is currently going through the same thing and he has elevated himself almost to a lottery pick because of the year that he has had for Oregon, even though he is going to be 24 when the draft rolls around and Duarte has shown that, Hey, like, yeah, I might not be a younger prospect, but I can come in and help you right away. I could probably start for some teams next season. Um, You know, all American type year. And for LJ Figueroa, it's can can I replicate that? I mean, he was very close to shooting career highs three point percentage this year. He shot thirty seven percent from three. Uh, he was 0.3 rebounds away from a career high there. Uh, steals. He was you know very close to his career high there, and he also you know played fewer minutes than his career high of thirty two a game in 2018-19. And this season he played twenty nine minutes. So I, I look at this and think. There's a lot of positives, but there's some negatives too for coming back. And it'll probably ultimately just, you know, come down to is 
can I build upon the 2020-2021 season, increase my averages to 50% field goal shooting, shoot above 40% on threes, maybe go to a, a two steals per game number and be more than just, uh, you know, can you, can you get those assist numbers up? Can you increase your average a little bit? And if you do that, then you can maybe move yourself into the draft status where you're, you're draftable right now. Like Duarte was, was generating some draft buzz as a junior at Oregon. I don't feel like Duarte, uh, LJ Figueroa right now, like if you were to go pro all of a sudden, like NBA teams are going to be, you know, at minimum saying, Hey, we'll give you a G league spot. Um, like, I don't know if that's there yet, but you know, that that's what he could win uh, or accomplish by coming back to Oregon next season. And people are going to say, well, why wouldn't you want to pursue a G league career? Or why wouldn't you want to pursue a, an NBA career? You're going to get paid a ton of money. Yada, yada, yada. Well, that's true, but overseas money is also really good. And he could make probably more overseas right now than he would in the G League if he if he if he left. So there's a lot of discussions. You know, I, I don't think there's a wrong choice here. And that's the great thing for Figueroa is either option he chooses will probably be one that works out for him. I think this one's really fascinating because he feels I don't think there's any guarantee that with one year at Oregon he has a draft stock, like you said the following year. I don't think there's any guarantee with LJ that like he comes back and he suddenly is like a first round pick or he's even drafted at all, maybe. So, and because partly because of his age, partly just because of his skill set, I, I, I think his shot is probably, I mean, like the shot mechanics aren't perfect and you can go out and find a lot of guys who have a little bit better form and who probably can shoot it at a similar percentage. So you weigh those sort of things. And like, I think he is a fantastic college player. And I just kind of wonder what his real professional, especially like NBA prospectus is. And so like, to me, it's like for him, is it, I want to go maximize college and come back and, and go out with maybe being, yeah, like an all conference player, or maybe like you said, a dark horse conference player of the year player, get some national attention push the Oregon program to another level. You know, Oregon had a, a, a solid season this last year. Could have been better. He comes back. The team has, you know, similar or, or greater aspirations, and maybe they reach those, and he gets to ride off in the sunset as part of something special. Um, so, like, I think they're, you know, just from, like, a player, you know, from a player perspective, there's that. And then, of course, there's all sorts of, you know, the individual has all sorts of other reasons to, you know, return or not. And, like, I don't know, Matt, this is, this is going to kind of jump into the next part of this, but let's just tackle this before we, we go into this. How much do you think LJ's decision impacts what Oregon does in the transfer market? And like, let's say LJ decides to come back. How many players do you think they take? Does that impact the kind of players are going after? And let's say he doesn't, how does it impact it? Like, I could, I feel, I feel like and we're going to get to these last couple questions here and they're both kind of regarding the transfer market, Oregon not having landed in anybody do you think it's almost kind of as simple as like once LJ decides they'll have a little bit more traction or do you think that's kind of, you know, those two things aren't even really related to each other. I do think it's impacted some a little bit. Um, I can guarantee other schools are telling players that Oregon's looking at like uh, Stanley Umade hey, uh, you might come to Oregon and 
you look at the roster right now and think, oh, you're going to start, but then LJ Figueroa could come back, and now all of a sudden you're not starting. We have a an opening for you here. Um, I'm sure Oregon's being negative recruited against with that hanging over them. And if it was me, I would probably right now, like I would run the, run the risk of not getting LJ Figueroa back. And I would wait, I would wait on his decision before really like doing a lot of pressure. Um, Not that Oregon's going to do any pressure, but like I would first see if LJ wants to come back. That's, I think that's probably their most important recruit right now. And if he comes back, I think you've got another starter back. You've now all of a sudden got three guys from a sweet 16 team back uh, and your head of your press is all intact with Figueroa, Richardson and Eric Williams. And you've got also a four starter back in Infale Dante who opened the year as a starter. So I look at that and think like, that's probably your most important player. He's got experience and, you know, wait until he's there. Now, is it impacting things? I'm sure it is to an extent, but I don't think it's, it's also a drastic one either. I don't think a lot of guys are looking at it and saying, well, I can't consider you until LJ Figueroa makes his decision. It just so happens that some of the guys that Oregon was targeting were guys that played similar positions um, as Figueroa. I also think the fact that Will Richardson's back and the fact that Eric Williams is back too has impacted some of these guys and their decisions that they want to, you know, of where they're going. Stanley Umade, um, Boogie Ellis, Matt Bradley. I mean, these are guys where they don't want to go somewhere and be the fourth or fifth option. You know, they want to go and be the number one, or they want to go and be the number two, um, or at minimum, the number three option. And right now, like, I have a hard time looking at anyone who's on the transfer market and saying, you're for sure going to be ahead of Will and you're for sure going to be ahead of Eric Williams. Like people sleep on Eric Williams immensely in my mind. Um, This is a guy that that was averaging like 15 a game before he got hurt and then got COVID. And then when he came back uh, from both of those, you know, Figueroa had kind of elevated his, his status a little bit there. Um, Duarte was on a tear. Amarui was on a tear. Richardson got back into the lineup. And so he kind of fell into that fifth man go-to spot and, you know, embraced it and was, and, and was okay with it. And his numbers dipped a little bit, but when Richardson wasn't playing and before Williams got hurt and then had COVID or was out for COVID protocols, I don't know if he ever had COVID, but he was out for COVID protocols he was one of the best players in the conference. And so I, I look at this and think this is probably a case where Dan Altman said something really interesting uh, last week in his wrap-up interview session was the transfer portal can be full of really good guys, but there's also a lot of guys out there that are looking out for their interests. And it's all about finding guys that want to come to Oregon and win as a team and buy into the culture of team first before me first. And not that Matt Bradley or Stanley Umade are, are bad apples or, you know, me first guys, but there are guys out there that are like, Hey, it didn't work out at my other school. I want to go somewhere where I, I know I can start, or I want to, I want to be the guy that gets us to the tournament. And I just need a little bit of help to get there. And I, I think some of these guys, it doesn't fit. You know, Oregon can say, Hey, we're going to start yet. You're going to play, but you're also not going to be the one option. You're not going to be the number two option. 
because we've got established guys in the program who are, who are like that. And so that's what I think is really important for looking at grad transfers. And if you go back in the history, Eric, you and I were talking about this yesterday before you even got this question. I, I think in Dana Altman's entire time at Oregon, none of his grad transfers have been the primary or the secondary go-to player on offense. None of them. And the only one that tried was Elijah Brown. And that was the year that Oregon didn't make the tournament. Every other guy has kind of been a, a secondary role player uh, offensively go-to wise. And the guys that have committed to other schools, Bradley, Boogie Ellis, Stanley Umade, um, Ke- uh, Kellen Grady, you go through the list of guys and none of, you know, all of those guys were looking you know to land at spots where they could be the one or the two score. You know, I'd be shocked if any of those guys are, are going to be the third or fourth option scoring. All right, let's wrap it up here. And Matt, I, this, some of this ties into what you're just talking about. So we can kind of make this as abbreviated as we want to, but I'm combining the last two questions. First one from at Oregon duck fan. Oh, five big name transfers are coming off the board. When will Dana start landing some hopefully sooner rather than later hashtag odds and audibles, please use the hashtag. I don't know if we've gotten quite as many frequently, but that does help me find the questions. And then finally, we'll, this is very much a similar question. So from at Altman Fever, is the departure of Stubbs the reason we can't land any of these top transfers? If not, what's happening? Um, let, let, let's start with the second part there, Matt. Like I just mentioned, could the LJ Figueroa part be kind of slowing some of the traction down? Is Tony Stubbfield having gone to DePaul, the vacated assistant coaching position, um, which was typically one of Oregon's primary recruiters, is that possibly just as big, if not bigger of an element for why things have been a little bit quieter than LJ Figueroa in your mind, at least. I think it's impacted things a little bit. Um, I mean, like for instance, Niamari Burnett, a former five-star guy that was at Texas tech this year as a freshman, he entered the portal. Um, That was a guy that Burnett was being recruited heavily by Stubbs. Um, And Oregon kind of cooled off on him anyways, but when Stubbs left, uh, that officially kind of ended um, Oregon's interest there. Uh, like a guy like Langston Wilson, um, a guy that's the number two junior college transfer in the country, he got out of his national letter of intent with Alabama a couple of days ago and is opening things back up again. He had an offer from Oregon, and I checked with him, and he said that you know at that time Oregon hadn't reached out to him, but Stubbs did. And so you know I, I think – to a degree, there are some guys that, you know, with Sofield not being on the roster, the connection has now been lost. And, you know, maybe it's not as good as it was prior to that. That being said, like, I still have a hard time coming on and saying that, you know, Oregon can't get recruits because Stubblefield's gone now. Like, some of their best players have been signed by players or by assistant coaches on the roster right now. And Folly Dante is the fourth best player in program history. And he signed with Mike Menega from Oregon, their assistant coach. Nathan Biddle is the fifth best player in, the, in program history. He signed with Kevin McKenna. Um, Lewis King was a Mike Menega guy. Uh, he is seventh in all-time history. Um, Frank Kepnog is 12th. He is a, a, a Mike Menega guy. Addison Patterson, he's no longer with the program, but he was the 14th best player. Uh, he is a Mike Menega guy. Um, Francis Cora, who's no longer with the program, but he was 17th. He was a Mike Menega guy. 
Peyton Pritchard was a McKenna-Altman deal. Um, Dylan Brooks was a Mike Menega guy. Miles Norris was a Menega guy. Isaac Johnson was a McKenna guy. Um, you know, that's 25 through the 25 top players in program history. So, you know, there's still a good chunk of guys that are in this program now or that were previously in the program that came to Oregon and, and their primary recruiter was not Tony Stubblefield. Now, yeah, he signed the best player in program history in Bull Bull. He signed the third best player in program history in Troy Brown. Um, he was huge in getting Jabari Brown, who was six. So three of the six guys in program history are, you know, Stubblefield guys. And, and you could put it to, you know, probably five of the ten. Dorsey, C.J. Walker being the other two are, are in there. Um, but I, I don't think this is a case in which Oregon is – it's a sky-falling type of a deal. Oregon can't get anybody now because Stubblefield's not here. And then I guess in general, Matt, to wrap up this discussion, what, what, what's your you, – I mean, is anything imminent? Do you think they're going to land anybody soonish? Like by the time we record next week's podcast, will we be talking about? There might be one. There X? might be one next week. You know, okay. whether it's next Friday, um, you know, so like ten days from now, like there might be one then. Um, I also think, like, kind of going back to what I said about you know previous grad transfers, I don't think Oregon looks at the best available grad transfers and only those guys. Like I, I think Altman is got a system in place now. And yeah, you want the best player possible that you can get. No, I'm not saying that. You know, they right. went after some of these guys that are the best players out there in the transfer market. But at the same time, they're looking for guys that were like, hey, I was the fourth option and I averaged eight points and I was the team's top rebounder and I averaged eight rebounds a game. And I want to experience the tournament. And I don't care if I'm, if I'm not going to be the go-to score or the number two score. Well, that type of a transfer, he's not going to be viewed as like a top 10 guy in available you know, transfer markets, but he's highly valuable because he's coming in and saying, I don't care about scoring or I don't care about being the guy or the, the, the Robin to a Batman. I want to have a role and that role could be defensive stopper. And I want to play in the tournament at all costs, very much like Shakur Justin, very much like Anthony Mathis, a couple of years ago where Mathis came in and was like, look, I'm okay coming off the bench. I want to play in the tournament. And if my role is to be that sniper where one game I score six points or eight points, and then the next game I go for 22 because I get hot. I'm cool with that. And I think that's the type of player that Altman is really going after because he knows, Hey, Will Richardson's a PAC 12 player of the year candidate. Eric Williams is an all league candidate uh, in the conference coming back. And then we've got Infale Dante, we've got Frank Kepnog coming in, you know, coming back next year. One of those guys, I'm confident, will be really good. And then you look at it and say, Oregon's going, well, we also got five-star Nate Biddle coming in, and we're set at, you know, go-to type players here. We need guys that are going to embrace certain roles, whether it's a defender or whether it's an elite shooter off the catch or off the bounce. Uh, We need a, a shot blocker. You know, guys that are very, very good at one or two things and are okay not being the guy on the team. All right, that's going to do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast. Uh, thank you for submitting the questions. We really appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the show. As always, we really appreciate that even more. And until then, you've been listening to the Austin Audible's podcast.
Talk to you later, folks. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast wherever you get your podcasts.